This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by the CEO and president of Emory Healthcare, Dane Peterson. Dane has got one of the most, the president, chief operating officer, Emory Healthcare, excuse me. Dane has got one of the most interesting backgrounds in the business. He's both the University of Michigan and a Stanford Business School graduate. He also spent his formative years in, in the professional world in, in the auto industry, not the healthcare industry. Dane, can you take a moment? Uh, Bachelor of Science in Engineering, uh, Stanford University Graduate School of Business, now President and CEO of Emory. Take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about points of pride in Emory Healthcare today. Oh, sure. No, thanks, Scott, and thanks, uh, thanks for having me, and I appreciate the, uh, the very nice um, introduction. Yeah, you know, my, my background, uh, uh, engineering undergrad, as you mentioned, at Michigan, uh, spent 10 years in uh, engineering, uh, did uh, some uh, risk prevention work, uh, did some uh, manufacturing work, uh, as well as uh, product design work for Ford as my last job in fuel systems. And, you know, I think that, that is a, um, a different background than, than most folks within healthcare. Uh, but when you really think about what healthcare is uh, from a, a process perspective, you know, having an engineering background, I think, really lines up well with a significant amount of the work that we do. Now, where it doesn't line up quite as well is, uh, you know, how people-driven uh, we are, right? Our, our, we have processes and people uh, that drive our, our, uh, our services, our, our care processes. Uh, but at least on the process side, I think those 10 years within um, uh, engineering really helped me uh, in my career the last 20 years within healthcare. Um, yeah. Dane, went, went, yes. Let, let me ask you a question. Before we sure, get please. to healthcare, yeah. before we get to healthcare, two quick questions. Sure. Electronic vehicles in the United States, still about 4% of the market. I saw it the last number. It's still a very small percentage overall. It doubled from last year, but still a very small percentage. It, you know, it, 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 five, 10 years ago, it was the Toyota Prius, and it was sort of a very, not gimmicky at all, but it was a very small percentage of people that were interested in driving it. At what point are we all driving electric vehicles? What, what, and, and obviously, there'll be, there'll be used cars on the road that are sort of the old kettle converters. But at what point are we all driving electric vehicles? Do you have a sense of that? You know, I don't. I don't know if I if I have a real sense of it. But I think what you're seeing is is the you know the beginning beginning of a of a hockey stick. Um, you know where you know you've got you know folks like Ford uh, that are are you know getting rid of their sedans and going and going um, uh, you know hybrids only hybrids and trucks and uh, uh, Volkswagen and others. So I, I think what you're seeing is an infrastructure being driven uh, that will accept more uh, electric vehicles. You've got the manufacturers um, actually focusing their R&D on electric. Um, and, you know, fuel cell will be right behind that in the you know, 30s and 40s. But, yeah, I think, I think you're seeing a hockey stick. Um, I don't know if we're ever going to get away from, you know, internal combustion, uh, at least from, a, from some portion. But, you know, I don't think it's too far out, um, you know, within the next, you know, 10 years. It's not too far out to, to think of electric as being the majority. Right. If you almost look at it in terms of your own car buying, what's that point where you buy your first car that's truly an electric car or your first what have you, and, it's, and you see that mindset starting to move in that direction. I'll ask you one other car question just because you spent time at Ford in the car business as an engineer. Do you have a favorite brand or car to drive? And you could avoid it if you want to avoid the question, but you drive an SUV, a convertible, a sedan, and is there a you know, is there, are you a car guy and there are cars that you just love? 
Yeah, sure. So the interesting thing is it's not a hard question at all because I, 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 um, I, I believe the oval blue. Um, and so I'm a Ford guy. And the car that I drive is actually a 2013 uh, Ford Fusion Hybrid. And um, I love it. It's got 125,000 miles. Um, it, it, it brings me data, Scott. If you can imagine an engineering guy that actually likes data. Um, but I get, I get a braking score. Uh, it lets me know how well I'm, I'm being efficient. And so this idea of this hybrid, I, I, you know, again, it's eight years old now. Um, but I, I, can't, I can't imagine a better car. But now I'm, but I am you, looking forward to You were one to, of the you know, first people. You were one yeah. of the first people to buy the Fusion then. I mean, yes, yes. First, I mean, to buy the hybrid, to buy the hybrid. Yeah, and the I, Ford Mustang, yeah, the Ford Mustang electronic vehicle. Oh, I, I, I bet you that I bet you that is just a beautiful car to drive. It, it looks gorgeous. It's a new car. It's very interesting looking. It doesn't look like a Ford Mustang, but it looks like a beautiful car. So, just starting to see him around. Anyways, I will convert the discussion back to healthcare. I promise. Hey, any, any, points anytime, of pride any, anytime I can talk about Ford, you, you, you got me. So I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> God bless. Talk about the, um, you know, Emory Healthcare, magnificent system, a few points of pride in Emory Healthcare. Yeah, you know, I think it's really, it really comes down to our people. Um, uh, the Every point of pride that I have within our, our, um, our organization is, is because of the people that are providing the care or the people that are supporting those that are providing the care. You know, one of the things that just recently came out about maybe two months ago, maybe about a, month, about a month ago, is research done in the, in the spring, is a worldwide meta-analysis that showed uh, out of published survival data that Emory Healthcare's performance over the first about nine months of the pandemic was arguably the, the, the best across the globe within this meta-analysis. Now, again, that's published data. There might be folks out there that have not published their survival data that is, uh, is better than ours, but from the published perspective, uh, there was nobody, um, nobody better. That is a, an enormous point of pride when you think about the amount of the number of people of both caregivers as well as support staff that actually came together over a long period of time to fight a global pandemic to get that kind of, of feedback and results uh, where, you know, hundreds of folks, um, you know, left our organization alive uh, that wouldn't have if they went to, quote unquote, an average uh, center is just remarkable. And, you know, the other thing about it, Scott, is just to give you just a little more flavor to it around the I'll say the, the, the depth of it is we can actually look back 10 years ago when we started our, our Emory Critical Care Center, that, that part of the reason that we have such a strong critical care and acute care team is because the investments that we've made in critical care over the last decade, great leadership, great investment, great training. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a point of pride because it's both a, you know, a near-term um, uh, perspective around performance. But you could also look back and said, we didn't get there because we woke up in March with the global pandemic. We got there in part because over a period of 10 years, we really focused around that aspect of clinical care. So that's one, one certain large point of, of, of pride. And then the other one is just academics. Uh, Scott, I, I really enjoy working with um, or you know, working with academic-driven uh, folks and working within an academic medical center. Um, it's, it's not that, that you know, community providers I'm not saying good, bad. I'm just saying I like working with the academics. It's, it's, it's more complex, certainly much more complex to have three missions, teaching, research, and clinical care. But I think the, the, the richness of the work that we do and the impact that we have on our community, 
uh, is something that, that really, really motivates me. So to me, it's, it's all the academics as a point of pride. And then this recent meta-analysis that just showed the value of, of, of consistent investment on, on, you know, investing in the right thing at the right time. I mean, the academics and being at the very forefront of medicine it makes it quite interesting, doesn't it? It it does. There, you know, there there are. Well, you know, I, I I think for me the word's exciting. Now, with excitement also comes some challenges with respect to, you know, I'll give me an example. When 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 Taver, um, the the transaortic valve replacement, you know, was was just going through, and we were doing a lot of trials. Uh, yeah, the valve came came free during during trials or low cost, but you know, we we were losing money every time uh, we did it, and so you know there are some there are some challenges with respect to being an academic um, and having your physicians and clinicians really pushing you, you know, beyond comfort zone and, you know, beyond your current state. So I look at it as more as excitement, um, uh, being able to be a part of a team. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not a doctor, right. Or a nurse, but I get to be a part of the team that actually helps support that type of research and clinical care that moves, you know, not only this organization, but the country and the world forward. Uh, it's a very exciting place to be. And, and when you look at this year, hopefully we're recovering from COVID, but obviously great concerns right now about resurgences. Let me ask you that question. What are you seeing in the greater Atlanta area on COVID-19, the Delta variant and so forth? Do you have a sense of how that's going yet? Yeah, we do. And it's, and it's, um, it's concerning and frustrating at the same time. So our data, just just to put it, you know, and we actually still have really good collaboration with our uh, local competitors when it comes to, you know, sharing COVID COVID data. So we get that three times a week to make sure we know what the Metro Atlanta area is doing, not just where our facilities are. But just for Emory, we've seen an 11-fold increase in hospitalized patients uh, just since the first of, of July. Uh, it's a very concerning rate, uh, and there's nothing. We've, we have some pretty elementary regression models out there to give us a feel for what things look like seven days out, and there's there's no slowdown to it yet. So this Delta variant is having a significant impact. Uh, now, not as significant as Jacksonville um, and some other areas across the country. So Atlanta is still not you know worse than our previous point, um, whereas other parts of the country actually are having a higher peak now than they've had since the global pandemic. So this Delta variant is a significant um, uh, uh, issue for us when it comes to, as we're trying to go out, you know, get out of the, of the pandemic and get into more recovery phase, you know, you, you kind of get slapped right back into trying to figure out how to manage 150 patients, um, which, you know, we were down, you know, below 20 uh, just this month. So um, it is very concerning. And I think the frustrating part of it ends up being is, is we have a way out. Uh, the vaccines have shown significant um, efficacy when it comes to um, getting, you know, keeping people out of the hospital, whether it's a Delta variant or not. And yet we have vaccine hesitancy in certain parts of our, of our communities that is, I'm just going to say it, 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 it's frustrating. It's frustrating to have a solution that for whatever reason people are not, um, are not buying into. And let me ask you a question about that. The people that are coming in hospitalized, what's the proportion of vaccinated versus non-vaccinated? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, it's still um, a heavy, uh, a heavy preponderance of folks that are hospitalized um, are unvaccinated. 
Now there's, you know, when you think about certain populations, you know, if you have a population of say, you know, 100% of, of your X are vaccinated, you know, this Delta variant can still cause infection. Uh, but very few of those uh, vaccinated infected people are hospitalized, especially if they don't have a, you know, immunocompromised background. Uh, if you're a relatively healthy person, you're vaccinated, uh, you know, we're, we're not seeing a lot of those patients in our, in our hospital. Yes, we, we've got the situation at home where one of the, um, you know, one of the children's, one of the kids is significant others has got vaccinated, but got COVID, but is doing fine. But, you know, of course, throws everything into a tizzy at home because all of a sudden you're, you're trying to figure out who quarantines where in the household and so forth. But it's a, oh, my goodness, it's fascinating to see it sort of this, you know, back up to 50,000 cases a day in the United States and at least by you know, the past counts, that would have meant that 500 plus will ultimately die, which is a very, very scary number. And we're hoping that number is a little bit lower, uh, given the extent of vaccinations and hopefully at least partial immunity or at least from getting very sick. But what a scary situation. Well, that, Dan, that, let me that, take you back to a Yeah. No, I think that's one, 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 one last fast thing is we had the, at the very beginning of the pandemic when we had our mask, you know, mask work is, you know, the little, little kind of cute saying we had was, you know, my mask protects you, your mask protects me. Well, we can, we can say that about the vaccine now, too, with the kind of efficacy those vaccines create. You know, my vaccine, you know, helps support my family and my community and, and, uh, and others, uh, you know, help protect me and my family. So, um, but um, no, we need to get more folks vaccinated. And the vaccine is so much more effective than all these other measures. I mean, just at least it's it's my own sense of it. It's just so much more effective than everything else. People got to get vaccinated. My perspective on it, right? That's clearly my perspective on it. It's the most effective tool. You know, a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the vaccines are clearly, we need everybody to get vaccinated. Um, Next question. When you look at the next six months, the next year, how do you look at the top priorities for Emory Healthcare top few priorities how do you look at things when you look at priorities yeah no that's a really it's a really easy one for us it's it's first and foremost workforce um uh we are and this is not this is not only emory so you know uh, the folks across the country uh you know we're not the only only people that are really struggling with with workforce both clinical and non-clinical um uh you know shortages across our healthcare system and really across the country so workforce and everything around workforce um, is the first priority for us um, for the foreseeable future. The second is EPIC. So we are going through an, an EPIC electronic healthcare uh, health record uh, transition uh, that we started in the fall of 2020 and uh, we'll, we'll go through October of 2022. And so the, the fiscal year um, uh, for us, uh, you know, September through August, uh, is going to be a really heavy um, epic uh, transition uh, period, and then everything around COVID recovery. When you think about just the idea of, of when, you know, non-workforce aspects of COVID recovery, you know, understanding new patient preferences, understanding new provider preferences, understanding how to integrate telemedicine more effectively in areas that really add value, um, and areas that maybe it doesn't add as much value don't don't push it as hard. So those are the three big ones for us: is workforce, epic transition and the continued COVID recovery. Thank you. I mean, it must be fascinating. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me, like the Judy Faulkner of Epic and so forth. You know, it, it's 
it, it, it's almost in, in healthcare, she's thought of as like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or something like that. But it's sort of amazing that she's not thought of that way throughout the entire sort of country's ecosystem. And I guess she's kept a relatively low profile, all things considered, because she really is like an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates or a, or a Steve Jobs or something like that and what she's done with Epic. Yeah, I, she's, a, she's a remarkable person. A uh, remarkable leader, and um, uh, you know, I would argue, uh, on, to your point, um, a uh, as remarkable visionary um, within within her her space um, as um, as as any of those. Yeah, you know, you you, you might throw Steve Jobs just because because um, I don't know Steve Jobs obviously, but or didn't know him. Um, there might be something there that is even more even larger, right? Apple even larger than Epic. Um, but everybody else you said, I'd put uh, I'd put Judy right up on top of that list on relative impact, relative vision, um, and staying staying true to her knitting when it comes to knowing exactly what you know what Epic is for. We're I mean, excited, it really we're, is. We're, we're excited about the transition. I mean, it's really an amazing, amazing success story. Even with all these other things and all these other noise, all these other things that they got to compete with. It's an amazing success story at a major, major level that touches, you know, 20 percent of the economy, but, you know, a much larger percentage of people. I mean, it, it really is fascinating. So whether Google, Apple, whatever it is, they, they've got their own spot in there. And as the Cerner, of course, too. Uh, but Judy was the founder in a different way that, than, than maybe some of the Cerner people were. But just fascinating, really a fascinating story. And she's built, she's built a wonderful team. No, it's amazing. They've built this crazily gifted ecosystem in Madison, Wisconsin around it. They've they've done a remarkable job of recruiting great talent, keeping great talent, building a great team. And and what's happened over the years, the service orientation of the team has gotten better and better as well is the sense I get out there from people. So just a fascinating thing. I mean, and and no knock against Cerner, which is also just a remarkable, remarkable company than many of the other ones, the Allscripts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Different question. You're both a Stanford graduate, a Michigan graduate. Uh, like the Ford question, you don't have to answer it. Is there a preference in alma maters, or are you equally devoted to both? You know, I think it's it's a it's a funny it's a funny question. Um, you know, here's my take. I I won't be that political, um, but I, but I, I don't think I'm that I'm that controversial. I think most of us um, would say that our undergraduate experience um, has more impact than graduate experience. And so that, that's what it is for me. Um, you know, I feel, I mean, incredibly blessed uh, to say that I'm a graduate of both, you know, Michigan and Stanford. That's, I mean, that's pretty lucky. I, you know, drop through the lucky tree and hit every branch. So, I mean, both absolutely fantastic universities, unbelievably thrilled to say that I was able to, to, to go to both. Um, but Michigan, from a, from a heart perspective as an undergrad, I think you, you know your formative years are there. My deepest friendships are there. Um, you know, uh, so you know I, I I can say without hurting any Stanford feelings um, that Michigan has a little softer spot in the heart. Uh, and by the way, if Stanford was undergrad, I'd probably say the same thing about Stanford. Well, no, and, and it's really remarkable because you really had that true Michigan undergraduate experience where you went from there to the auto industry, which at at that time in the world was such a natural sort of evolution because it was such a big part of, you know, especially in the engineering program, recruiting into that world and so forth. So, I mean, you really did have that quintessential mission experience. And and you were also there 
when they used to win two. So truly a quintessential night. I say that. I say that in all facetiousness because they've got a magnificent basketball program again and a, and a good enough football program. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll uh, I I think we're going to win every game, and I've never I've never strayed from that. So. <laughs> And I feel that way as a Cubs and Bears fan, so I'm with you all the way through. Dane, what a pleasure to visit with you. I thank you for indulging me on the car discussion. I find it so interesting and so fascinating that before a, health, a magnificent healthcare career, now leader at one of the greatest institutions in the world, you spent 10 years in the car industry as an engineer and so forth and so on and, and have a real understanding and love for it. Just a pleasure to visit with you, Dane. Thank you so much for joining us on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Well, thank, thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. And Again, thanks for all that you're doing with respect to education and, and communication around healthcare. It's uh, it's also making a very large difference for us. So thank you for all your efforts and your team's efforts.